1: you're listening to the london view of books podcast i'm joanne o'leary an editor at the paper and my guest today is the writer patricia lockwood she's the author of the memoir priest daddy and the novel no one is talking about this and is also a contributing editor at the lrb Her most recent piece for us is about the fiction writer and essayist David Foster Wallace, who died by suicide in 2008 and is best known for his doorstopper of a novel, Infinite Jest, which came out in 1996. Patricia's piece is a review of something to do with paying attention, a novella of Wallace's published posthumously last year by McNally Editions. But her piece is really a wide ranging essay about reading Wallace then and now what it means to have encountered him in his heyday when he was taken to be a kind of literary guru and moral instructor, and what it's like to return to him today, especially in the wake of recent revelations about his misogyny and treatment of women. Patricia, thanks so much for joining me to talk about the piece. Oh, thank you for having me. We'll talk about something to do with paying attention in a moment. But first of all, I want to take you back to Stuart, Florida, sometime (laughs) in the (laughs) mid-noties, when you first picked up Infinite Jest off a bookstall. Who was Wallace to you then? And what was it like grappling with that novel?
0: So at that point, he was strictly an essayist. Um, I don't remember at what point I picked up a copy of A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again and then afterwards considered The Lobster. But those were the two for me. And I sort of just read them in this off and on way. Like I talk about in the piece, you would just kind of set aside a morning with your coffee and you would read about the cruise ship or you would read about whether lobsters can feel pain although i don't know why that seemed fun at the time um it was and so i had that but no i didn't really feel the strong call to pick up his fiction until i think after he had died and honestly looking back it probably was during infinite summer when it seemed like everyone in the world in the wake of his death sort of picked it up and said let's give this a shot there's something i talked about in my notes as i was thinking about it and it's It was that feeling of fellowship. And uh, sometimes it's not about the book at all, but it's everyone accepting a challenge at the same time. And I think that he gave people an opportunity to do that. Uh, So I do remember it really vividly, probably because of the gators, etc. But also everyone else just doing it at the same time.
1: Yeah. And you say in your piece, um, I was very struck by this characterization of Infinite Jest as the first great group read. Yeah. And that it sort of changed the way we thought about reading in some way, Um, that it wasn't an individual activity anymore. It became something collective. Could you say something more about that?
0: Yeah. And I think, um, you know, this is the way the piece is written and it's the way it was experienced, too. There's a life cycle now for an essay online that's about two days. right? It's two days if you're lucky it's a day, you know, if, it, if it's if it's regular. And so it has to become a sort of relay between people, you know, this person pulls this screenshot, this person pulls this quote, and everyone is considering different facets of it at the same time, as if the the load is too heavy for us to experience on our own. Um, or maybe it is that loneliness that we want to experience it with other people. But it is funny, because if you write something like this, you are revisiting everything. You're going back, you're reading new things. Um, you're picking up infinite jest again at the age of 40, which is not something maybe <laughs> anyone should do. And this is months of work. I mean, ideally, you would want like a year on this and you would really look at everything. And you know that it's going to be digested um, sort of in this superficial way in about two days. So then how do you deal with that? Um And going back, how do you deal with that as a fiction writer, knowing that this is how books are now digested, I think?
1: Yes. And you describe it in the piece, the experience of reading it as something like training with ankle weights. Mm -hmm. So I wondered if you could say something about Wallace's difficulty, this idea of this encyclopedic novel, um, the kind of narcissism in some way of, of a project like this, but also... You're quite interested in what you call his runs or states of flow mm-hmm. or moments when the book sort of
0: comes alive. I mean, you could think of it as being narcissistic. But when you go back and you look at that that quote of Mary Carr's where um, or she she refers to him saying that he wrote it to impress her. Now, that's not something you can take at face value, really. Is that something we actually believe? But it is kind of illuminating when you look at Infinite Jest and it sort of reads like someone trying to impress another person. Um to impress all of us. So for me, I was, you know, I read selectively. I went on my own rabbit holes. I followed my own spirit um, into the woods, and I didn't always feel the need to to read these these great challenges, these big books. Um, but I liked the fact at the time, as I was reading it, that I was doing it, and then afterwards, I liked the fact that I had done it. Um, I did notice at the time that the reading was something that he was holding just out of our reach like that I had this image of the book being held above our heads and us just not being able to reach it and wondering at the time why you would do that so for the first time I think probably I was I was a very conscientious reader I did not skim um, and I, I allowed myself reading Infinite Jest to skim. So I talk about the quality of um, his nystagmic writing, where at some point you're just moving your eyes back and forth across the page. Maybe there is some ideal reader who is not doing that, who is able to engage with every particle of every clause of infinite jest, and it wasn't me. So I had to allow myself to, uh, at at certain times, just be looking at it and sort of letting it go into me. Um, and yeah, afterwards, I was like, well, wait, that is something you can do. My life would have been easier possibly before if I had known this. So that's a little bit... What I meant by that, when I revisited it though, I was I was surprised because I had started with something to do with paying attention, and then had gone on to the Pale King, and I had really enjoyed both of those and found them very energizing, very stimulating. And I don't think I was prepared uh, for the sort of deadening quality of of a lot of Infinite Jest and then a lot of uh, brief interviews with hideous men. So we see something in Wallace laid side by side, you see this absolutely compelling quality in these runs that you talk about. And then in other places, just absolute unreadability. So at any point when you're considering all of him, you're having to consider those things side by side.
1: Yeah, sure. So let's talk a little bit about this novella, something to do with paying attention. It's a curious object, not least because of its relation to The Pale King. Um, a book Wallace left unfinished at the time of his death and which came out in 2011 so could you tell us a little bit about the book um say what it's about and just explain the publication history a little bit
0: I really like you working on all your wikipedia knowledge we were joking beforehand about how <laughs> like we spend the morning just reading the wikipedia entry to make sure the dates the names everything's are fixed you know it's, it's like fixed in place a um, large type yeah so i it's a beautiful object really the mcNally edition mine is numbered three I'm not sure if that means Means anything uh mcnally edition number three and there's this this beautiful empty chair on the cover and there's this uh fake wood paneling which i really appreciated as a design object i thought it was really beautiful to look at um so it is one of Wallace's uh, showcases I think he is at his best in a monologue um, where he is not sort of using the device of ventriloquism the voice in something to do with paying attention is is very direct which is his best quality in these sorts of pop-out runs that we talk about so this is ostensibly an interview of a character named Chris Fogel, and we agreed beforehand that we would not make the mistake of calling him Jared Fogle, the American <laughs> sandwich pedophile, which is the most uh, famous Fogel in America. So yeah, so he opens it. I'm not even sure, or I'm not sure I even know what to say. To be honest, a good bit of it I don't remember. I don't think my memory works in quite the way it used to. It may be that this kind of work changes you, even just road exams. It might actually change your brain. For the most part, it's now almost as if I'm trapped in the present. If I drank, for instance, some tang, it wouldn't remind me of anything. I'd just taste the tang. From what I understand, I'm supposed to explain how I arrived at this career, where I came from, so to speak, and what the service means to me. So he's talking about that, but of course it's a fictional device to allow him to talk about everything that ever happened to him because we don't know what's relevant. We don't know what leads us down a specific path. Um, A lot of times it'll just be something very incidental a mistake even he steps into the wrong classroom one morning after a period of being in and out of different colleges not really knowing what the course of his life is going to be being what he terms a wastoid, you know like uh smoking up with his his mom and her new lesbian partner Joyce um not knowing what he's interested in but feeling Perhaps this directionlessness, um, feeling perhaps his, his father's disappointment in him, and then stepping into a classroom one day where there is a Jesuit at the front of the room wearing a slightly racy watch, as in my experience they will, and, you know, talking about taxes and giving a hint in this lecture that he has some sort of a past with it, that um, this is something that in his secular life, which we must believe he has foregone, that that he was that he had experience in, that this was his life before. And Chris Vogel uh, is struck by this. He experiences one of these conversion moments that you do sometimes find in Wallace. Um, now, the excerpts that we get of the actual lecture... Seem again like kind of fraudulent, uh, a little bit guruistic when he actually allows the Jesuit to talk. But when the Jesuit is simply existing in the numbers, Chris Fogel is enraptured. There is a slight detail he mentions earlier that he went through a period where he could not read because he would count instead. He would count the letters of the words. And uh, he tells you it at periodic times throughout the text, like how many words have elapsed. Um, and he does that at the end of the Jesuit's lecture. So There's this idea of existing purely in numbers, and Wallace, in the quotes at the end of The Pale King, talks about this idea that maybe there is this string of numbers that Chris Fogel knows or once knew that when recited or accessed is the formula for total concentration. It's not something you actually arrive at in the book, it's simply in the notes, but it's it's this very interesting idea um, as he piles these numbers up, as he, he listens to the Jesuit engage in this, this pure recitation of form of what we are to do, you know, as tax officials. Um, That he does attain this state, this state of concentration. So the book is a little bit about that. Well, that was pretty well done. I don't know that I'm always good at summarizing what something is about. But yeah, that's, that's, that's what something to do with paying attention is about. And it, it was, I really did find it enthralling.
1: And this monologue was originally published as part of The Pale King, right?
0: Yes. So he had considered publishing it as a standalone novella, I think just out of a sort of desperation. Um, you know, I was looking um, at Oblivion, his, uh, I believe, 2004 short story collection this morning to kind of refresh myself on that. And so much of it is an overlap with the pale king so much so that it's really a companion piece with it and you think too did he publish some of these stories because he couldn't figure out where they went in the pale king some of them really feel like they belong there um you can see sort of the two books in conversation with each other and wallace maybe not being able to come to the to come to terms with the fact that he was a, a short story writer maybe instead of a novelist that uh, like formally that is what he was
1: I was intrigued by this suggestion of yours in the piece that The Pale King in some way profits from its incompleteness, mm-hmm. that had Wallace had the chance to finish it, he may have destroyed the novel by imposing a superstructure yeah. on it in the way he sort of did with Infinite Jest. And of course, he originally planned for that book to be written in fractals, <laughs> whatever that means. Whatever that means. Um, <laughs> But there is a great moment in the essay when you discuss Wallace's career as a junior tennis player Mm. and how he was at his best in bad weather conditions. And you compare this to the way he creates adversity for himself in his novels to write or play through the difficulty, as it were. So there's an almost masochistic impulse in what he's setting out to do. But when he took on the impossible book, you write, something sometimes happened to him and this is what you describe as the run the state of flow the pure streak but i was i was fascinated by this idea that completion somehow worked against him or that he was he was better in fragments
0: or just is there no absolutely um and i was thinking a lot about beauty when I was reading The Pale King, and when I was rereading the essays too, uh, like a lot of his really beautiful writing is is both incidental and atmospheric. It's like describing weather. Um, you know, it's describing like the, the fizzing atmosphere over a just-opened can of soda, um, which is a, a strange strength to have, and it's hard to know how to use it. So a lot of times in the stories where he will try to foreground beauty – um, forever overhead or church not made with hands. Um, he fails, in my opinion, because it's it's a willed attempt. Um, his beauty generally is tossed off. It, it falls from his hands. It's him standing on the court noticing the conditions. So I think it is true. I think it's true that he liked to, to build this theater of adversity for himself. When you're reading Infinite Jest, you almost think I could tear it apart and I could lay the sections together that wanted to be together. It's like he took it, he took a narrative and he shredded it. And it, this was intentional. He talks about this in, um, although, of course, you end up becoming yourself, his road trip book um, with David Lipsky. He talks a, a great deal about it and how this is how he experienced reality. So this is true to how he believes fiction also ought to be if it is representing that reality. And, yeah, what we're getting in The Pale King is his editor, uh, Michael Peach's— I'm not sure that that's how that's pronounced, but his editor, Michael Peach's— Putting it together, I think, in in a, a loyal way, in a way that is loyal to Wallace, but also loyal to the text, um, to what sections wanted to be together and what wanted to lie side by side. But you can also think, you know, if, if Wallace had it in his hands, the sheaf of paper, I talk about Karen Green and um, his editor, Bonnie Nadell finding you just picture him, you know, throwing it up into the whirlwind and just letting the whirlwind chop, 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 chop. And then it falls down in into the form that he would have preferred. But we can't know. Um, I did have a little bit where I talked about an essay of John Jeremiah Sullivan's about the Pale King, where he couldn't He couldn't really love it, it seemed, because he knew that Wallace would change this and Wallace would change that. And that wasn't the final word. But I like to exist in that state of process or possibility or even sometimes stuckness or despair where they can't find a way out. They can't find where the book goes. For some reason, that always did fascinate me.
1: Hmm. I wanted to ask you about this word attention, Hmm. which is there in the title of the novella. And it's something that comes up again and again and again in Wallace's work. What do you think he meant by it? And what do you mean in the piece when you write that his unqualified and unironic belief in the idea of paying attention seemed to prefigure the primary way we construct morality now?
0: Yeah, I have talked about attention personally as being the soul um something that that pours out of you towards something that looks at it in a real like considering um light i think that that sees it for what it is um that isn't too kind and isn't too cruel but that falls in it and and shows all of its features that's how i see it it's to me i wonder if he felt that it wasn't something that was stolen from him Moment by moment um, in in so much of what he talks about with fiction, the modern world, the fracturing of the attention, his great nemesis TV,
1: Mm. you can
0: feel him maybe longing after reality in the same way that I was longing after reading when I was looking at Infinite Jess that he wanted to experience it as a whole and he was not being allowed to. Um, I don't know. I think we can fetishize attention. Um Brian Dillon has talked a little bit about this. Um and maybe looking at it is this sort of like illumination, this eye core, this this like crystal liquid pouring toward things. Is not the right way because we are experiencing things in our lives. We are paying attention even when we feel that we're not. Um, I think that Wallace was probably prone to states of what I think of as hyper focus. Um, I think that he talks about that in Derivative Swarton Tornado Alley. Um, that, that tunnel of play opening up between him and Gil and T Toy, um, which is such a good name, of course, that he had to use it. <laughs> it's great a really name. great name um so i think that he he did have that he had those moments where the 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 tunnel sort of like ripped into being and there was a spotlight between him and what he looked at and maybe he wanted that all the time i don't think that we're constructed to have that all the time i think it it can be sort of <laughs> destructive i mean it can be a destructive thing in my life i'm sitting there for 8 hours reading infinite jest i mean and i'm not living in the world right so attention can also be something I don't know, that, that could potentially be destructive as a force.
1: And there's an interesting um, quotation. Well, it, it's a memo to Salve, sort of, of Wallace's that he wrote while writing The Pale King um, that you quote in the piece. And it's highlighting the kind of correlation between attention and boredom in some mm-hmm. way. That true boredom, you kind of come to attention, pay close attention to the most tedious thing you can, tax returns, televised golf. Um and in waves, the boredom will wash over you and just about kill you, ride these waves out. And it's like stepping back into colour from black and white. Um, and this it's almost a kind of religious impulse, isn't it? Very that much so. Yes. Monkish. Yes. And um, it is
0: in reference to Shane Drinion, the asexual tax monk. So this also exists in the notes at the end. And he is asking himself, you know, um, in the text, in the notes, Is Shane Drinian happy? You know, the one who's listening to the Ultra Fox Meredith Rand drone on about how beautiful she is in her time on the ward as he levitates. Um, It's absolutely religious. And we know that there is this, I don't know, it's hard to know where to put these religious impulses in Wallace's work. We know that he twice, quote, you know, um, tried to convert to Catholicism, but failed the period of inquiry. Yes, I Mm. imagine that he did. And then I think I, like, attended a Mennonite church. It's, it, it's all very odd. And you can't know. These things are, are, are so deeply personal. But it is in the work. Um, and then you get to the sort of eternal problem of Wallace, that he is so moralizing, that he is instructing us to, to pay attention and, and to be aware of everything. And then you're like, but wait, what about this? You know, what, what is this impulse to, to be so moralistic? when with the left hand, like these are the actions you're you're committing.
1: Yeah, and what does it mean to ask us to pay attention to you Right. essentially. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you about this about the cult of Wallace. Mm. So your piece has provoked a lot of reaction online, <laughs> on Twitter, um and one rather bizarre topic of of debate has been this notion of reverence. Mm. And certain people, certain men, um have become quite excised by this idea that the piece doesn't show enough reverence to Wallace. What is it about him that provokes this sort of strange relig- religiosity? And did it surprise you that people are still thinking about him in this way? I was surprised by that
0: actually. And I was reluctant to take the piece on you're always after me. You're like, "Why don't you write about <laughs> John Updike? Why don't you write about Another William?" Bad man. <laughs> and I'm like, "No, I don't want to do that." So, you asked me to do Wallace and I was very reluctant partly because I didn't feel that I was the ideal reader of his fiction, partly because again, not totally remembering what he had done. He existed in this sort of blinking red zone in my head that just said bad. Um, And then also, you know, because it felt very difficult to get to a new place with him. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think that I did much in the piece beyond a restatement of what we know. Um, But it turned out that we didn't know it. Maybe everyone had experienced the same memory wipe or, or genuinely did not know these things or didn't know where to put them um i think i don't think you always have to take these things these things on when you're considering someone's work i don't think you always have to set aside a section to be like now here's here's the bad man aspect of him but i think because he is treated as a guru and accepted that position again i think you should always always suspect a person who applies for the position of guruhood or who seems to find it a mantle he's willing to take on. I think that we have to, to worry about that always. Um, like, what does it mean, particularly that he's he's held in this sainthood, when this is the reality? So I was thinking about that. I don't think that you get to a place of, of settling your mind about it. Um, I think particularly taking on the, the Zadie Smith essay, which was so helpful and so useful to me, but then also, you know, saying this is, indispensable yet somewhat tortured, I don't think that you write an essay about Wallace that is anything but that. I think that you're going to tie yourself in knots with him. I think you're going to exist in, in several minds at the same time. And I think you're not going to know how to hold your own experience of reading him um, uh, equally balanced with, with his acts.
1: Yeah, and so this might be a good time to remind people of some of the controversy surrounding Wallace and women, people who maybe haven't read the piece yet or who are less familiar with, with Wallace as a figure. So could you tell us a little bit about these revelations that came out in 2018?
0: Yes, and we did. We knew a, a version of this ahead of time, but um, Mary Carr in a series of, of tweets um, sort of clarified that... Basically, they had been in a relationship in the early 90s when they were both in a period of early sobriety, I believe. Um, So, yeah, this was in Boston, too. And there's a lot of other stuff that is, is true that she has spoken about, you know. Um, a lot of the monologues from Infinite Jest are sort of like directly lifted from their experiences with their own friends in AA. That these are you know stories that he just kind of took and ran with, but yeah, she says that that he was obsessive about her from the beginning, and. Um, and there were things that I had cited in the Updike piece about, you know, tried to like force her out of the moving car. But she says, you know, he threw a coffee table at her, kicked her, followed her five-year-old son home from school, tried to buy a gun to kill her husband with. These are really, really sort of beyond the bounds um, behaviors and and quite shocking to try to assimilate with what he's always telling us with his his lectures or his sermons or reading something like this as water. Um yeah, so that that is in the piece and it was it was surprising to me. I mean, I think it was just a it was a short section. It was three paragraphs and again it was me refreshing myself about that information um and and putting it in there and it did really provoke a sort of fury, which I did not quite expect. I thought, if anything, I would be accused of being too reverential <laughs> toward him. I did. That's exactly what I thought would would. I, would I genuinely thought. Yeah. I thought the ending is going to be a problem because I do have this moment where this text, which uh, brief interviews with hideous men had felt so deadened to me for so long. It would not occur. It would not come alive. And then it suddenly comes alive in this story, which is, you know, quite viscerally about sexual assault, um, it seemed like that would be a problem. And instead, it, it was as if we were having the same conversation we were having, you know, before we had had these revelations.
1: Right. And I, I guess part of it has to do with his difficulty, right? How mm-hmm. the sometimes attritional task of reading his work became not only a badge of intellectual worth but it became a way of of defining the self for so many people and particularly for men I mean the the gender thing is there right I mean there's something I mean I'm not suggesting that Wallace only appeals to men but there's something (laughs) about that novel that encyclopedic kind of zeal yeah um, that, that seemed to just get them in the right place um, in some way and it's difficult to think of a writer's sense Wallace to whom people have turned to for moral instruction in this kind of
0: totally bizarre way right Um, yeah I think it's why he continues to hold that position because no one else has come and maybe it is because it's it is the end. Like he marked the end of something and not the beginning. Um, someone said on Twitter that it, it's clear now that you know that he was marking the end of something, the end of the the big systems novel. Um, but you know, ends are often seen or mistaken for beginnings at the time, which is something I I felt reading Infinite Jest. It was like. This is the new thing, but there was such a heavy imprint of the old teachers. He was always, always wrestling with his teachers, you know, and Girl with the Curious Hair, you have an entire story that takes on John Burris, Lost in the Funhouse, just called Lost in the Fun House. So he always felt those things very heavily. I think he felt a need to overtake his competition and his teachers. And yeah, that's not something I've have felt as much um, as, as a writer as uh, a, a nominally a novelist. It's it's not an impulse I have, so it, it was difficult to understand. Um, I do know maybe more men who are inclined to feel that way or inclined to to look at Wallace and both see him as, as a father and someone to be toppled. I didn't have that experience, really. I sort of read Infinite Adjustment and was like, well, this is not quite for me, but I'll continue to enjoy these fine essays with my set-aside mornings and my cup of coffee. Um, I don't know. I think... You see it in the Updike thing, too. It's like he's he's our dad and our baby at the same time. And I don't know what we're supposed to do with that. It seems such a deep human impulse that it, you don't want to take it away from people.
1: Yeah, I mean, I love that moment in the piece where you describe there being a, a time in America where you couldn't say anything about Infinite Jest without a little man <laughs> popping up and saying, that's, that's the point, point. <laughs> don't you understand? Um, and that was entirely my experience of it. I, mean, yeah. I, I read it as an undergraduate at university, and he was one of the only writers to whom a semester-long course was devoted. Really? At We're talking, yeah, late 2000s. So you had, you know, Beckett, Joyce, John Donne and David Foster Wallace. Um, and it, 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 you know, it seemed an entirely reasonable thing. Um, That was the esteem he was held in. But it was, you know, this class was just populated by these little men Um <laughs> you know just absolutely enraptured by him and you know it was almost cultish
0: and and quite strange and i i didn't feel like i totally belonged there right um, right but it's also something you know i you don't want to take it away from people it's something i like to see i like to see people loving a writer i like to see people loving a book um i I did when I was posting about the piece, asked to see pictures of people's infinite jests because I posted a picture of mine that I had shredded the sides of that I had physically, materially, partly destroyed. And it turned out to be a very common experience that people had ones that were torn in half or held together with duct tape or burned. <laughs> there was one that was the twin of mine essentially that had been burned at that same corner. And I don't know, I think or that's propping up a bookcase. Yeah, yeah, that was a very that's good one. Great. It's it's hard to take that away from people and you're also re- you're not trying to take it away. But people feel that that's what you're trying to do. Yeah. yeah, I was going to. I I was interested about you know the the place that he held in the UK and in the imagination there whether it was the same sort of canonical level he existed at in the United States. Um, I was just in Rome meeting the Pope, and he's huge <laughs> there. Stacks of his books in all of the Huge in the Vatican. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so what happened was I went into this. Um, Italian bookstore. It was, it was an English language bookstore called Otherwise. And I noticed this huge stack of David Foster Wallace. And we were making friends with uh, um, the the worker at the bookstore named Donato. And as we leave, he gives us these totes with a uh, David Foster Wallace quote on the back. That's like, you know, fiction's job is to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. And I'm like, I have to bring this into the Vatican as my purse. <laughs> like. <laughs> It was absolutely incredible. So he, yeah, I was like, okay, so this is what it is in Italy and Rome. So what is it like? Yeah, what is it in, in the UK? And and then you, as you say, <laughs> a semester long course devoted to him.
1: Oh, it was certainly in Ireland. Um, yeah, <laughs> huge. He was huge. Um, and you know, there's this kind of sunk cost fallacy in a way, isn't there? How much time yes, you, absolutely. you sink into him. And so he yes. becomes really important for you yeah. because you've devoted hours and hours and hours of your life. Yeah. So I kind of, you know, this guy's, you know, I, I see it now. This guy's really important and I know everything about him. Yes. Um, and so I came around to that way of thinking. Yeah. So.
0: And I wasn't expecting what I found. Um, I had been talking to a friend and, you know, I, I was like, tell me about your experience with Infinite Jest. And he's like, I read it three times and it just got worse every time. And I was like, well, I probably won't do a third. But on, on my second read, that was absolutely what I found. So was my initial feeling was it simply i liked the fact that i had done this that i had proved myself capable of doing this even just sometimes moving my my eyes across the page um just that i could say that i had that i could join that fraternity that club um that that membership of stockholm syndrome experiencers and i really wasn't because i had read such excellent writing from him elsewhere expecting to 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 experience it as you know a, a rat that has eaten insulation with one of its eyes hanging out on a little red string there was so much more actually like Stephen king in it than i remembered um so what you're doing in a piece like this obviously the reason that you provoke ire and provoke discussion and, and rereads and conversation all of which are good things um is because you are in contention with someone's half-remembered cherished reading right? The book that, that we hold in our minds, in our hearts, um, is, is not the book. You know, what, what I remember as Middlemarch is not Middlemarch as it actually exists. So when you're writing critically about something like Infinite Jest, that is, that is what you are contending with. It is you're contending with people's love and not really exactly remembering all the stuff that goes on in this book, um, which is always going to be the task of a critic. And it's why we are so widely abhorred and hated. <laughs>
1: It's it's love and it's earnestness with yeah. them too. Yeah, it, it is. Um, and I wanted to ask you about the commencement speech. Mm. Um, oh, I just this is it was so
0: awful! <laughs> oh my god! I had never read it. And I was just ri- and I'm like, this is so fraudulent. I was actually outraged. I was upset. And you know, it goes all the way back to Infinite Jest too. That the old salts in AA are talking about this is water, and you actually take it and you you spin this off. Anyway, continue your question. My feelings about this is water is you can you can you can sense them. I'm sure.
1: Well, no, it was you know I think there there was a moment in your in your original draft where you say you know commencement speeches it's 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 something that should stop the process should stop. Oh, you know, I think I actually said the
0: publication of standalone commencement speeches is a process that should stop. But probably you're right. Probably they should not exist whatsoever, right? Or it should be it should highlight like the hollowness or the hypocrisy of the event in such a way that it, it should be some terrible politician right or like the head of craft foods something like that like Elon Musk should be the speaker just so we can see like what we are entering you know that this is the world um maybe that's a very cynical way of looking at things and also i never graduated from college maybe i would feel very very differently
1: i mean we we didn't have them where, You where didn't I have went. them so, no, yeah no it no, was we just like latin um <laughs> but you know but for- what was it about that? I mean, was it the moment that this this kind of earnest, unironic kind of, you know, pop philosophical commencement speech? Why did it appeal to people? I mean, is it an American thing? Is oh, yeah. It, no, it is. It, was it's because
0: it? it's pop. It's because it's fraudulent. That's what we like. We've built our country on this. Right. And I think the outrage I felt in reading that was some of the same outrage I felt reading brief interviews that I that he had actually allowed his talent to be infiltrated with jargon. And I did not like that. You know, I th- I had written earlier in the Infinite Jest part about how so much of it, you get this feeling of him like worrying about his seed and protecting his talent. Well, actually protect it then. You know, don't let this in. This is what we're guarding against. We're guarding against this infiltration. So I don't know. But at the same time, you're asked to do it. You're not thinking probably that this is going to make up a cornerstone of your reputation later, or that even people are going to take it as seriously as they have done. Publish it in a standalone edition with a great deal of airy space between text, you know, like you, you aren't necessarily aware of those things. So it, it's probably not as deep as I'm thinking. But for me, it did stand for something, right? Um, it, yeah, yeah it, it stood for something that was like you have, you, you've allowed something in that should not have been allowed.
1: We've talked about the misogyny um, a little bit and the accusations and so forth. But I think one of the things your piece does really well is to show the way in which those tendencies are part of the texture of the fiction itself. Mm -hmm. So they're not just these, you know, paratextual events that happen outside of the book. Um, And I wondered if you would talk a little bit about Brief Interviews with Hideous Men or the pea goat indeed or these women in in his in his fiction and how
0: problematic these figures can be yeah i mean you're right it's it's if it were completely absent from the text it it would uh, you know we would not be talking about it in the same way but it's there it's there particularly in something like brief interviews and i mean the pea goat is just she's such a rip first of all actually of mary carr and then pretending she's not from texas was just again very outrageous um to me and that you know she's so beautiful that it forces her own father to be in love with her and you know she has to have like acid thrown in her face it's so So bad it's really bad but it actually became more of a problem for me because the pico gets some stuff to do she gets some nice little physical set pieces in there i did not like what we experienced in the pale king with meredith rand um, because it really could have been good. He's really, really listening to her. Shane Drinian, the asexual tax mon- uh, monk, is really listening to Meredith Rand at a fake TGI Fridays, basically. And this is an, an after hours sort of gathering. Are you vaping right now? I literally see you vaping right
1: now. <laughs> I thought I you turned your cover this. off. <laughs> you're, you're literally not supposed to be looking at me.
0: <laughs> is this how you behave as you were. <laughs> All right. Keep that in. We're keeping that in. But yeah, so he's listening to her and he's allowing her to go in this long monologue and What she's talking about all the time is her own awareness of her prettiness. And it's just so grindingly awful. And it's the thing that you think at the end of of brief interviews, that story that I talk about at the very end of the piece, that's like, oh, he could almost get there. You know, he's almost paying enough attention, but he's maybe not hearing what she's actually saying. Maybe the problem is in the listening, not the paying attention. Maybe he can see. Maybe he can assess. Maybe he can't hear.
1: Hmm there's something i mean the the idea of this book is these interviews are mm-hmm. structured as answers with the, right. the the question is just a cue so you don't yeah. know, know what it is but there's something that also feels very sinister and strange to me
0: I mean, what what is he doing with that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, what- and the one that I talk about specifically in the piece, like I reread it a couple times because it's a little bit different from the others in that like he keeps offering the interviewer like a drink. So it doesn't actually seem like it is taking place in a therapeutic setting almost. And there is then the hint that something is going to happen to her, right, at the hands, potentially, of this this hideous man. So all of that is in the text. And mm, it's not very heavy. It's just lightly strewn there. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's the one that you have to think about. And it. I think it is the one that is a lot more unsettling for people. Um, I think you can go all the way through the fiction, you can end up with oblivion. But that's not actually what I wanted to do. Okay, so what I wanted to do was I don't know, if you're fighting with someone you're keeping them alive, right? if you're talking about good old neon which is probably the late story that people talk about the most then what you end up talking about is suicide right and i didn't actually want that to be the central fact of the piece um i don't think that suicide necessarily is the central fact of someone's life um i don't think that it, it casts that shadow back over everything so i why not, i i sort of wanted to keep it in this place where he was like still bad still alive wire you could really still engage and fight with him i think that part of what you're trying to do in an essay like this is to to meet the person when they are alive, um, and not in this sort of sanctified or mummified state of death.
1: You point out in the essay that there was an ambient pressure for a while to say that Wallace created a new kind of fiction. Right. But that in fact it was the essayists who were left to cope with his almost radioactive influence. Yes. I think that's actually very true. Um can you say a little more?
0: Yes, <laughs> yes, I can. Can you say a little more? <laughs> so I did originally in the piece refer to... um you know, his son, John Jeremiah Sullivan, uh, parenthesis, not actual. So he has just these people who have come after him, who have acknowledged their debt to him and and who have worked sort of in the the path that he cut for us. And, you know, when I was reading his essays, I had no thought of writing essays myself. I really didn't. It it didn't seem like a form that interested me in any way. Um, But I think there's something about the directness of voice that is what has carried people forward um so you have like Jim didion on the one hand and she's in her sunglasses and she's having a migraine i actually relate with that like a whole lot more now than i do with the fw and then you have this guy who's basically like releasing the spout directly into your consciousness um so that you're sort of like carried along on this and that is what we learn to do, and I think in in the fiction that um, is generally considered his most successful, or that certainly the fiction I like the most, something like something to do with paying attention, uh, something like good old neon, uh, he uses the direct voice in a fictional consciousness, right? So I think the fiction that is the least um, successful is the most mimetic, most ventriloquistic. Um, Wardine be cry sort of things um where he really taps the essayistic voice that is piped directly into you in fiction is where you really hit the sweet spot um so maybe that is present a little bit more in fiction than are his formal quote-unquote innovations or interests um that's something that could probably be thought about a lot more that that kind of directness of voice and whether that has carried through into fiction but yeah in terms of like the big fractured huge disco ball uh innovations that he produced, I don't think that that was where it was at, apart from maybe a, that, that brief explosion of hysterical uh, realism, quote unquote, at the end of the the 20th, beginning of the 21st century.
1: You've said there that when you read, read the essays, you weren't thinking about writing no. nonfiction yourself. But the idea of the voice being piped directly into mm-hmm. a, a nonfiction piece, I mean, that could serve as a, a good description of of your nonfiction, of your sure, essays too. Sure, absolutely. Do you think now, looking looking back, um, that you did imbibe anything from those
0: essays? Oh, sure. Absolutely, yes. I think absolutely all of us did, um, who were kind of just like, as you say, imbibing, taking these things in osmotically. You're kind of picking it up and going through everything so encyclopedically. You can go through an event encyclopedically in a way that is not as exhausting as trying to uh, represent modern reality exhaustively, right? So when he's writing encyclopedic novels, they exhaust us. And I think part of the reason is that There is no trust, um, sometimes with the encyclopedic novel, that the detail will choose you. You have to cram everything in because you don't know what is the significant moment. But if you're just, you know, going to the state fair, if you're going to, um, if you're hanging out on a cruise ship, you can get everything in. And it feels quite different. So I think we enjoy that kind of encyclopedic approach combined with a very disarming Hey, I'm just like you guys. Kind of voice we can enjoy that more in the essays than in the attempts to sort of represent everything as it is in fiction.
1: And I like this idea too that he relaxed or allowed yeah. himself to to relax in his nonfiction. Yeah, I thought that was very striking and possibly true because he wasn't worrying about his seed. Yeah,
0: um, as you describe him doing when he's when he's writing the novels. I think he seemed he seems like happy, relieved to be assigned something, and sometimes that's true. You know, like. I do these pieces. And as someone pointed out, you know, maybe this is the position you hold, that people will read your essays and, and not your other work. And to me, that's fine because I don't have any conception of myself primarily as a novelist. It's not something, again, that I'm like coddling and worrying about. It doesn't really matter to me. And it very well might be true. We don't know what our strengths are necessarily. We don't know what will release us into a kind of writing that is very direct and true. For him, it did seem to be assignments. And there is kind of the feeling in the runs that you talk about um, and then I talk about in the essay that he has like set himself an assignment. I'm going to write about this, and I'm going to go through everything exhaustively about Chris Fogel. And then he's released into a kind of relaxation, um, gets to play, you know, restful micro tennis when you're not thinking about doing the great things. Sometimes you can really do it. That's great. Thank you so much, Patricia. Really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, thank you so much. Enjoy your vape. You
1: can read Patricia's piece in the 13th of July issue of the LRB, along with Will Davis on inflation and Josephine Quinn on Cyrus the Great. The LRB podcast is produced by Zoe Kilburn and Anthony Wilkes, and the music is by Kieran Brunt.